Welcome to the Financial Planners South Africa podcast, a show dedicated to driving the positive evolution of financial advice, specifically in South Africa. To join a global community of financial advisors, sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion, people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. AssetMap is a proud sponsor of this podcast. Are you looking for the next big thing in advisor technology? AssetMap is used by thousands of financial advisors to help create more meaningful conversations with clients. See for yourself how AssetMap is leading the next phase of financial advice delivery. Learn more at asset-map.com forward slash Louis for special listeners discount. This episode is proudly brought to you by Alan Gray. They say it's important to live for today. Although that might be true, we can't forget to plan for tomorrow. There's a lot of it left, after all. Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. Visit www.alangray.co.za to learn how we build long-term wealth for clients. Welcome to another episode of Financial Planners South Africa. Today, I have the pleasure to announce to you that we have Rian Singh. Rian is a partner at Strategy and that's part of the PwC Group and is part of the Digital Transformation Team. Rian, thank you so much for joining us today. Perfect. Thanks very much, Louis. Very, very happy to be here. Now, Rian, you have quite an interesting background. So before we jump into some of the work that you're doing within the PwC team at the moment, Maybe give our listeners just a bit of a background of kind of how you stumbled on financial services and, and how you got to where you are at the moment. Sure, no problem. So, I mean, I think um, a very long time ago, I studied actuarial science and that was a kind of a legacy of, of not wanting to do law, not wanting to go into accounting or being an engineer. And, and so actuarial science was pretty, uh, pretty much everything that was left over. Uh, so studied actuarial science at UCT, graduated then, decided not to become an actuary, however, uh, I went into consulting, spent 14 years in consulting, working uh, all in financial services at banks, at insurance companies um, in South Africa, did some work in the UK, in Spain, in the US and Indonesia. Um, and then after, after that stint, I then came into industry for the first time um, and spent about a total of six years um, working at Momentum and then Alexander Forbes. Um, and, and broadly at both of those two organizations, I was head of digital digital strategy in, in the different areas. Um, and then after sort of six years in industry, have, have rejoined PwC, then to focus on, on digital strategy. Wow, that's wonderful. And, and Rian, kind of how we managed to connect was around the report that uh, you published earlier this year that's called The Future of Advice and Engagement in Industry. You know, and with your background in digital advice, uh, it would be great if we can unpack this report a little bit today and maybe, you know, zoom in on some of the topics that would be applicable to financial planners that are listening to this, not necessarily the larger financial corporations that are typically targeted with these and, and more, you know, the man in the street delivering advice uh, to individuals. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, happy happy to do so. I think the, the, the background to the report is that 
whilst I was at those two different organizations that I mentioned before, you know, we would do a lot of uh, work on building new experiences, trying to digitize processes. And in the sort of good digital and agile practices, we did a, a lot of user testing. So there's a lot of research that we did in terms of putting things in front of clients, in front of intermediaries and brokers, getting their, getting their perspective and opinions. And, and over the six years, there was, a, there was a lot of insight and a lot of interviews that we did where we got learnings from what worked, what didn't work, and, and what were some of the trends. And so I think what we did then was um, I used some of those trends that, that, that we'd seen um, and also sat down with some of my other colleagues from PwC who, who've equally been involved in building and launching different financial services um, and advice businesses. And so we sort of put all of these learnings into the mix and, and trying to draw out some of the trends that we think are, are happening in the industry today. Yeah, yeah, Rian. And, and so as a consumer yourself also of financial services, um, maybe if we start there and to kind of look at your biggest frustration that you can see just personally dealing with financial services institutions, like where does that sit and, and where does it hit home? I think um, from for myself as a consumer, and it's one of the trends that we, we've highlighted uh, in the report, it's around the, the lack of personalization. Um, I think there's a lot of comms um, that I get, um, which, which are sort of targeted and, and you can sort of see that they're trying to be helpful, uh, but, but because of the lack of personalization and, and ability to understand who I am, you know, everything that makes up my financial life, um, you know, they, it often misses the mark. So my, my bank as an example now, whenever I log on, they have this entry screen um, on, eBay, on, on the online banking where they kind of show you your net worth and and, it, and it's based on what they know about you, which is fair enough, but it's it's completely wrong. And so as as a as a and there's not even the option as uh, that I have to go and add in, you know, what are the other holdings and products that I have with other financial institutions. So as a maybe it's just me. I just look at it and go, not useful. <laughs> Next and click through. So I think I think be, being able to understand uh, everything about me, allowing me to provide all of my information and then play back kind of this holistic picture that's personalized to me. I think that's one of my frustrations and it's something that we talked about in the report. That's so interesting. And it sounds like it, you know, it's almost detracting value by trying to personalize, but not using the data that they might already have on you. You know, so thinking of this as a financial services firm with, know uh, so much information about our clients like why do you think it is that the institutions get it so wrong i mean it's an interesting one and i think there's there's a there's a number of different components that i think the one of the big pushes that that we're trying to advocate for um is around trying to provide much more holistic advice um going forward i think you know if we take a step back and, and look at the industry there's a and, and what certainly came through in a lot of the discussions that I sat in on watching clients interact with intermediaries. There's a there's a there's a distinction between advice and advice. So there's, there's financial advice as the industry has defined it, and you know face has has there's a whole bunch of regulation that's set out and it's and it's legislated and there's a there's a there's a very strict process in terms of doing the needs analysis, what's the documentation, the recommendation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what an advisor can and can't say, et cetera, et cetera. And then if you if you sit down and you ask South Africans, what do they consider to be financial advice and ask them an open-ended questions around that, you find that a lot of the help that they consider advice isn't covered at all by what we call advice. 
So they're often asking for, you know, plain English explanations of what do these different products actually mean. Um, they're asking for visualizations. They're asking to, to speak to other people that have bought this product and have claimed from the product and can actually, you know, provide them, um, you know, uh, relay an experience that they've been through before. I mean, all of these things um, are, are elements of what South Africans consider to be advice and help. And I think, I think the, the, the intent behind FICE and was to you know, improve the quality of advice and to try and uh, improve outcomes. But I think in many ways, it's, it's forced us and it's kind of put a straitjacket onto the industry around you know, trying to be very strict and proper. And, um, and all of that's right, but I think we just need to think a little bit more holistically around what, what do people actually want and what are those other things that could be valuable, even though it's not strictly covered on the, the regulated definition of advice. I completely agree with you, you know, using regulation as a blueprint for how your advice should be distributed and, and how it should you know, reach your end clients is probably not the best business strategy. I love this concept of you know being able to talk to people that previously claimed or kind of thinking of advice in a, in a different way. Uh, tell me a little bit more about these interviews that you had with kind of monitoring how advice was given and, and how clients received that. What are the other interesting things that stood out for you? I mean, we, we talk about this as, as, as one of the trends in the report and we call it an, um, enabling non-linear purchase decisions. And, and really what this is about that, it was kind of an insight that, especially when it comes to big purchasing decisions across any industry, people don't think in a straight line. Um, and if you think about the metaphor always uses the changes that have occurred in the travel industry. So 20 or 30 years ago, if you had to book um, a, you know, a holiday to Thailand, you would speak to the travel agent and that travel agent would be the sole point of information. Uh, you know, they would book your flights, book your hotel, they would book your activities when you got to Thailand. Um, and now with um, you know, the explosion of information, the internet, there's no longer that asymmetry of information um, so you might still use a travel agent, but you'll be going onto Instagram and you'll see pictures of the beach or the hotel. You'll go onto TripAdvisor and, and read what um, other people have said. Um, you'll go onto Airbnb and read reviews and you'll, you'll take a whole bunch of information into account to then say, okay, I, I now want to do this. And you may use, um, like I said, a, a travel agent accordingly. And I think, I think we see the same change happening with, with the financial services and buying financial products. Uh, people increasingly um, favor the, the wisdom of the crowd over the wisdom of the expert. So very clearly, I'm not saying get rid of the advisor. I think, and, and you'll see in the report, we talk a lot about the role of the advisor is here to stand. And we don't think that we, you know, it's always going to be needed. But I think it's understanding that um, with, with, with no longer having this asymmetry of information, people are going to want to be able to, to get insights and advice, if you can put it in inverted commas or help from other parties. And so as an, as an advisor, I think the, 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 the challenge or the opportunity is to recognize it's not a one-to-one -one conversation that you're having in terms of someone making that decision. They're gonna be speaking to their husband, their uncle, their aunt, their kids, you know, wherever it may be. They're gonna be trying to read reviews um, on Hello Peter or, or, or some other you know, platform. And so how do you orchestrate this process of them getting multiple inputs and then guiding them to a decision um, and recognizing that, that you're not going to be the, the sole arbitrator of, of, um, of that purchase decision. Yeah, I guess before Google, you know, your advisor was your gatekeeper to information. 
And then it became your advisor is your gatekeeper to access to a product. And what you're saying now is that it's kind of this mesh of information from different sources. And I'm wondering, you know, like what things can we implement to make that a little bit easier for your client? Is it around, you know, communicating or is it just trying to preempt some of these things saying, hey, here's some reviews that you might find helpful or here's, you know, examples of what other clients have found helpful because there's also a big study around how uh, financial advice received from family members actually had a negative impact um, on on the financial outcomes. So, kind of, how do you balance that? I, I, and that's a great point. I think I think we've we've seen that quite often. That um, you're right. There's many there's many cases where people will check advice with with people that are close to them, um, um, family members or friends to get advice. And I mean, the the big joke that we had was you often hear the comment that oh, I'm going to speak to my insert family member X because they're an accountant or they're a lawyer. And there's the, there's the assumption that because you're educated, um, you automatically you know, are qualified to give financial advice. But, but we've definitely seen it in conversations that we've had with you know, qualified um, and highly educated individuals. Often they, they don't understand the basic concepts either around um, you know, their financial planning or, or, the, or their financial future. And so I think the... I think, I think it's key to be able to understand and to highlight what are the trusted sources information and how to facilitate a discussion. Uh, because I think one of the, one of the interesting experiences that we, we built a, a kind of digital experience for individuals to explore by themselves and just to get a, a better view of, of where they were and we allowed them to, to then share that with, um, with their advisors or, or whoever they wanted to share it with. with. And it was really, really interesting because um, one of the biggest insights we got when we did user testing afterwards, people said, listen, I actually understood what the digital tool produced. I just wanted to talk to someone about it. And I, some people said, I want to talk to an advisor. And other people said, I wanted to talk to my spouse. I wanted to just talk to my dad or my kids. And just, you know, just use someone as a sounding board to kind of work through what's in my head and then commit to kind of a decision. And so I think for, for advisors, also, what we've seen in the industry, typically um, from the insurance and savings companies perspective, they produce documentation that's very difficult to share. I mean, it's, it's I mean, you, yes, you can share it, but it's not easily digestible to people to actually understand what's in this document and what are you actually covered for. Um, and so I think I think the, the role that advisors need to play is, yes, engage with their clients, but then help facilitate the discussion that they're going to have in any event <laughs> with people that they trust to make sure everyone's on the same page around what's covered, what is the path that you're on, what are the trade-offs, what are the implications, what's the impact of those decisions, rather than letting that conversation happen anyway and you know somehow letting it prejudice what the decision is. Okay, so it's not fighting against those conversations. It's actually trying to be included in those conversations. And you know, from this the research that we've seen around the use of robo-advice is that the confidence that someone has to actually implement a financial product tends to be quite low. And that last step really becomes really difficult um, because they just don't have the self-confidence to take that step. And then the role of the advisor or, or you know, like you're saying, in this, in this case, it might be family members could, could get you, you know, over the line. No, 100%. And, and that actually touches on one of the other trends that we mentioned in the report, which is around uh, what we call hybrid advice models, 
And so I think there's been a lot of discussion over the last five years, which talks about, do you go robo advice or direct advice, or do you go, you know, traditional advice process? And, and to us, that's a false choice. I think the answer is that it's a, it's a blended model um, because hundred percent. And I think I, as I was mentioning earlier, I don't think you can ever take away the human component um, of the uh, of the advice slash purchase process. Um, you know what you can what what you can use robo advisors or digital platforms. You can use it for you know capturing information, um, financial education to get people to understand some of the basic concepts, and you can do it for actually you know providing a lot of those recommendations, the the high level recommendations, but but. Typically, what's going to then have to happen is there's going to have to be a human conversation, and and what is probably going to happen is, is from a value adding perspective, advisors are hopefully going to be able to change their the balance of their time. Where, from my experience, a lot of advisors' time is spent in grunt work, where it's it's capturing information, filling out forms, answering basic questions, etc. Rather, shift then come in and say, I'm going to spend most of my time then in terms of someone having gone through a process and then helping them be that sounding board to say. Okay, so we, we see these are the recommendations for you. Let's talk these through. Let's humanize this a little bit, little bit, and and let's make you comfortable around um, what the what 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 the what the what the platform is saying or recommending, and, and help you to get to the point where you can make a decision. And I think that's needed because I think as we've seen, we need to provide financial advice to a much larger set of of South Africans. Um, and it's it's going to be difficult to double or triple the number of advisors that we have. So we basically need to make the existing advisors much more productive. You know, you need to be able to almost set the goal to say, how can the the, the advisors of today service and see five x or seven x as many clients in a week as they are currently? And the, and the answer to that is, you know, working with some of these digital technologies and robo advice to do some of the grunt work, and then just allowing the human advisors to play a very high value added service in terms of almost being like an emotional coach, <laughs> a, a blend between an emotional coach and, and someone who obviously has lots of product knowledge to, to get people over the line. Yeah, Rian, that's so interesting. You mentioned that because you know a lot of the previous episodes on this, co- this podcast, we unpacked the role of um, an advisor as a coach and, you know, touching on the emotional side and then it's less important um, to only have the technical skills, you need both. I want to expand a little bit on what you mentioned because you know the cost of advice has really increased and it's made it unaffordable for you know the average person to seek out independent financial advice or you know proper holistic financial planning. And so with these trends that you're seeing, like is there a way that market can be served, or do you just see that you know the the businesses become more profitable? Now, how do you balance? the kind of, I guess, reducing the cost of advice and you know, also just not eating into the profit margins? Um, so I think, I think there's a lot that needs to be done. And there's a, there's a couple of elements to that question. I think there's, there's, there's definitely something that the insurance and the kind of savings industry needs to bring to the party in terms of um, you know, digitizing those processes reducing kind of the, the cost per policy or the monthly and admin fees um, and simplifying the products as well. I think there's a, I think we're, we're seeing there's a massive drive around product simplification, um, which then ends up in, in making those products much more accessible um, to, to, to consumers. And then I think there's, like I said, I think there's a, there's a new generation of 
tools and experiences that are needed um, in terms of allowing people to provide their information in a platform that they trust, um, that can then consolidate, give a picture of themselves, you know, provide some recommendations, and then that it is very easily shareable to an advisor, um, for an advisor then to come in and say, okay, let's now sit down and, and talk through talk through this experience. Because I think, you know, a lot of the a lot of the cost structure behind the current advice model is is driven by the amount of people that advisors can currently see, and and because they're forced to spend a lot of time on on what we can call admin. So I think I think as we can remove some of the admin out of the system um, and 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 use technology to make some of that disappear, I think it, it helps solve you know getting the the economics right in terms of making access to advice more scalable. Yeah, it's reducing these legacy issues, eh? These old systems that we sit with, or the or the large client base that someone might be sitting with, and kind of trimming that away so we can deliver advice um, at scale to the people that really need it. And you know, this is what this is about. It's kind of moving financial planning forward so that we don't get stuck in, in the old ways. And tell us a little bit about, about some of the other themes that came out because there's eight and you've touched on quite a few of them. Um, yeah, what are the other ones that, that you'd want to chat about? Sure. I mean, so um, I think one of the other ones is around what we've seen uh, and what we call being more authentically purpose-driven. So I think it's it's been really interesting in this pandemic. Um, there's been this realization that we're all in this together. Um, and, you know, across industry, um, the brands and the companies that have done the best throughout the pandemic um, have been the ones that have been, you know, very clearly being able to articulate what is their societal purpose? What is the impact that they're trying to, to achieve? But have also been to demonstrate how they've helped um, and achieved that impact. And I think the lesson for me, if you look at the, the South African financial services landscape, most of the companies have some variant that they talk about, like financial health or financial well-being or financial wellness. I think the challenge is when you when you peel it back, it all becomes a bit nebulous. It's it's all a little bit vague. Um, so I think I think what what's required is for um, the organizations to be be very clearly able to articulate when we talk about financial well-being, this is actually what it means. This is this is how we're going to measure it, and this is how we're going to show that we're actually demonstrating it and helping people uh, improve their their financial futures. Um, and if you can be seen to be you know um, authentically living that and authentically driving people's financial financial purpose. Um, then I think you know we're seeing evidence that that those type of brands will resonate um, a lot more with consumers. I think some of the you know when we get into when we've had interviews with clients around their perceptions of advisors, etc. There's there's often a question around the the role of debt versus buying financial products and how you know in many cases the best financial advice you can give to someone is to pay off you know high interest bearing debt uh, you know be it a credit card or or or, or whatever. Um, but very rarely do consumers complain, very rarely do they get that advice. It's almost always buy this financial product. Whereas, I mean, we've seen examples where at companies and organizations that are really committed to improving long-term financial wellness, where the first step has been debt counseling. And, 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 and then when you see once people have gone through that process and then have been able to free up, you know, six, 700 rand a month based on, on getting their debt in order, they talk about how that money's actually been transformational for their life, where they've then been able to up, you know, buy other financial services products um, at, a, at a secondary step once, they, once they've resolved that 
resolve their debt. So I think it's it's an interesting thing because you always get into these conversations around, you know, uh, where are the incentives, what what what's the long term play, what do we push now, etc. So I think I think the more and more clearly individuals and organizations can can articulate what their purpose is and, and show that they're actually living in it. It's not just a logo. I think um, the more likely chance of success uh, you'll have because because we're definitely seeing that consumers are reacting to that now. Rian, I love that idea of not only thinking of aligning incentives, you know, because the typical approach is to say, oh, this person is remunerated through the product. So, you know, that is the outcome. But what it sounds like is, is these companies have added additional pieces to kind of cultivate their clients to a stage where, you know, it becomes the best for them to at that point deal with them, but they take them through this this journey. What are the examples that you've seen, you know, maybe across the globe or, or even locally of companies that have managed to do that well? I think in financial services, there's a, there's a couple of interesting examples. Um, so there's been a number of investment managers um, who've decided to invest in um, ESG only compliant funds. So for example, BlackRock, I think they're probably the most prominent fund um, and they've made a they've taken a very clear stance to say they're only going to invest in in new energy or renewable energy rather, um, and have been quite clear that they've disinvested around coal and all fossil fuels, et cetera, um, because and and they've uh, and they've been rewarded by you know the shareholders in the market for for doing so. Um, there was a really interesting example in Sweden, where there's a, a new startup called uh, Deconomy. They've launched a credit card called Do Black. Um, and what's interesting about this card is every time you swipe the card, it calculates the carbon impact of your purchase. So, you know, the carbon impact of that coffee, of that Uber trip, of that flight. And then it actually cuts you off at the end of the month once you've exceeded your personal carbon limit for, for the month. And so that that service resonates quite heavily with um, what, what is generally the young population in Sweden who are more uh, progressive and more environmentally conscious because it's they're saying it's, it's important to me not to only manage my finances, but to make sure that I'm doing so in a way and I'm doing my part in terms of uh, protecting our future, et cetera. Well, you'd have uh, the traditional economists up in arms uh, with the <laughs> rational human trying to limit themselves. But it's so true that you're saying, I think people resonate to this authentically purpose driven um, outcome and you know it, if that's aligned with their values it just makes the purchasing process that much easier and the engagement around that easier no absolutely can we talk a little bit about the kind of the next one that you have which is around engaging in the in the channels of choice we mm-hmm. tend to default back to face-to-face meetings or you know emails or these days it's it's zoom meetings or microsoft team meetings like what are the things that you're seeing, the companies that are really successful, how are they reaching uh, specifically older clients, you know, that might not be engaging in the channel, the let's call it newer age channels. Um, how have they accommodated them? Yeah, so it's been interesting. I think what we saw um, as once the pandemic struck was across the industry in South Africa, if you look at all the insurance and, and asset management companies, about 95%, sometimes as higher as 98% of, of all of their new sales came through face-to-face channels. Um, and so once the crisis struck in, in March last year, you, you know, all of their sales basically fell off a, <laughs> fell off a cliff, and, uh, but rebounded quite quickly after one quarter, where 
a lot of them sort of switched to the digital channels, the Zooms, the Teams, the Google Hangouts, et cetera, and, and were able to then um, kind of um, get themselves back to the same level of productivity. So I think, I think there's been quite a lot of adoption of those sort of virtual channels in terms of, in terms of getting people um, to, to communicate with people. And I think some of the advisors that I spoke to actually said that they were more productive post this pandemic, because the, 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 I remember the one advisor I spoke to said, you know, I'd actually spend half of my week in the car driving somewhere, because this particular advisor was based in Stellenbosch. So, you know, all the different clients were out on farms, et cetera. So he spent a huge amount of time in his week, actually just physically driving out to see all of these different clients. And he said, now I can move from where I used to see two or three clients a day. I can easily see eight in a day now, you know, using, using Zoom. Um, so I think I think people have responded quite well, and you know everyone's adapted to this sort of a cliche new normal that we're in. And I think what we what we also talked about in the report was that um, South Africa, on the whole, is quite a young population. I think that we know. I mean, seventy percent of the country are millennials or younger. Um, and when you when you start getting into the details around, you know, whilst data costs are quite high. Um, we still see year-on-year year increases in, in internet penetration, smartphone usage, et cetera. And um, pretty much every adult will have a smartphone. It's, I mean, it's not going to be the, the, you know, the latest iPhone or, or, or Samsung. There's, there's a lot of rudimentary smartphones, but, but it's, it's more access to data that is, the, that is the issue rather than the device itself. Um, there's been some really interesting stories where we've, we've spoken to to individuals in the lower LSMs, and they they have the, they have a basic smartphone, and then they talk about data rationing, where they've got you know set amount of data for the month, and then they're very careful around what they use their data for, um, and to make sure it it lasts the entire month. Um, and so I, I guess the I guess what we're saying there is most of the population does have access, well, increasingly having access to the internet, increasingly has a smart device, and and people are actually quite comfortable having these multi-channel or omni-channel experiences where they want to engage with an insurance provider, you know, start in one channel and finish in another channel, um, you know, converse on Facebook to, to WhatsApp to then go to a call center and expect the golden thread to be kept um, throughout. They, for this young segment of the market, that's actually assumed to be a hygiene factor. It's not a luxury being able to, to service these, this omni-channel approach. And I mean, one of the interesting things that we've thought about, I think, you know, WhatsApp at the moment is definitely probably the, the most prevalent channel um, in the country that's been used. I know it was it December last year when there was the, you know, the furor around the privacy changes and there's all that stuff that was going around. But th I mean, that caused a small blip in terms of WhatsApp usage, but three weeks later, it across the country was back to the same levels of WhatsApp usage that, that was before because it has critical mass. You know, if, uh, there were lots of our people and friends that, you know, started Telegram accounts, but there wasn't critical mass there. There was just them by themselves. So everyone's carried on using WhatsApp. And, and WhatsApp's actually the, the cheapest channel to communicate in South Africa. And it's, it's even cheaper than USSD because USSD uses airtime. So there's, there's no channel that's cheaper than WhatsApp on a per message basis. And so you'll see increasingly many of the, the banks, the insurance companies, are saying, you know, can we use WhatsApp as a tool for sales and servicing to, to engage with clients? Uh, because the challenge with an app is apps were great um, when it, you're, it's a high touch engagement, 
Um, so if you think about social media, which you use every day, your internet banking app, which you, you know you probably use a couple times a week. Uh, but once you get onto, like I said, these, these rudimentary smartphones, um, because there's so little memory, you, you're really competing for space in that phone with Candy Crush. Um, so if you're going to put an app in that phone, it, it has to be something that's, you know, uh, you get the, the users getting a lot of utility from. And so we're definitely not saying it's wrong for insurance companies and, and banks to be, well, especially on insurers and uh, asset managers to, to focus on apps. But just be cognizant for a large section of the population, they're only going to engage with you once or twice a year to get a benefit statement, to get a tax certificate, to do a fund query or service request. And so rather than try and get them to download an app or to log into a website, which is something that they're going to do once or twice a year and probably forget the password to, rather engage them in the channels that they're already engaging now, which is WhatsApp for, I think, 90% of South African adults. Um, and there's some interesting ideas around, I mean, we, we floated and we'll see what the WhatsApp for business feature map looks like, but you can almost imagine, you know, setting up a WhatsApp group in the same way that you've got tons of WhatsApp groups on your phone, where it's all of your family members, your financial advisor, and um, the insurance company or the, or the savings provider. Um, and that way, you know, you're having this conversation where everyone has full sight of what's going on all the documents, you know, WhatsApp can handle PDFs, et cetera. So you can see all the PDFs that are being, the benefit statements that come through. When people ask questions, everyone can see, okay, this was the answer. And you've got that full history um, across the, the entire life that, that the entire family that has access to. And so it makes it very, very easy to share and to, to digest. I think, I think it's a hypothesis. I think we're gonna, as WhatsApp matures, I think for, especially WhatsApp for business matures and, and companies build out some of these robo-advisors um, I think you will increasingly see more of these kind of new type of WhatsApp groups emerge. Yeah, this ties in so nicely with the analogy that you had around your bank, you know, giving you useless information. Um, make sure your back office is digitized so that you can start using these tools. I'm wondering what the channel, you know, like the typical channel that someone engages with does to their expectation in terms of the speed that they expect response. You know, because we've seen that so much that, you know, typical email, people are still okay with, you know, maybe a 24-hour reply. But as soon as you are used to getting an instant response, like what has that done to the structure of these larger businesses where now all of a sudden they have to bring speed into the element as well? So, I mean, this is more for, more for an implication for the, for the insurance providers themselves than, than advisors. Um, but I think it has a huge amount of benefits because I think, you know, when, you, when you're speaking on web chat or, or, or at a call center, you know, you expect an immediate response. But, but WhatsApp is almost designed for asynchronous communication. You know, you can, you can text someone, you'll see that there's no blue ticks. Um, you, you've got confidence that it's red and you, get, you think, okay, I'll, I'll wait a little bit. And then at a little bit later point in time, you'll see that it's been read and then you get an answer. And it's got, um, you've got the full history, right? It's what we call sessionless. So whenever you go into WhatsApp, you can see the full history of the conversation going all the way to the beginning. So what we found is that people are actually happy to engage in WhatsApp um, and not get instant responses because they can see the full history and they know that you know, you'll eventually get a response and the whole you know, gray text, blue text thing, et cetera. And, and the benefit for insurance companies, I mean, if you're running a contact center or call center where people are calling in, you know, you have to be able to um, capacitate for the peak. So, you know, you know, whether it's over lunch hours, you know, you have to be able to answer 
all those calls at that time. And, and whereas if, you, if you're able to move more volumes to WhatsApp and to, you know, to the email channels, you can actually spread answering those queries over a slightly longer piece of time. Um, and, uh, you know, just being able to delay the response an hour or two um, has a huge implication from a, from a provider perspective and um, actually doesn't, doesn't worry the customers too much if, you, if, you, if, they, if they know that you will respond within the next hour or so. I guess you could also bring in, you know, prioritization of, you know, this client might be on this status, so therefore the speed of the response is much faster. So it's great to see businesses engaging with it, but yet there's so many that are not getting the CRM component right, that's not getting one central place of data. And at the same time, the lack of software um, for a smaller or medium-sized business to integrate with these, these things are kind of a little bit behind. Can we maybe talk a little bit about the tools and the kind of software that you've seen uh, businesses use? Um, is that something that you explored within in your studies in this report? Yeah, so I think some of the interesting platforms that we've that we've seen uh, have really been some of these profile builders or world builders that are kind of hinted by at the beginning, where where people are able to build up a full picture of themselves. Um, because as a company, you know, you will have a, a partial snapshot of, of who you are, uh, what your life looks like, and, and what some of your financial products and holdings are. So we can definitely take the first pass at, at pre-populating some of that, but then we have to allow you to be able to, to fill in all the blanks um, because there's very few South Africans that are mono-banked or mono-insured or will get all their financial services products from, from one entity. Um, and once the first capability is being able to very easily add in all those other missing pieces of your financial life, uh, but then build up a picture of, of what do your expenses look like? What does your life currently look like now? Um, and then be able to fast forward or run different scenarios in different moments in time to say, you know, what would your life look like at age 60? Um, what are the trade-offs that you're going to have to make uh, when you retire based on all the choices that, you, that you've made now? Um, you know, do you need to work longer? Do you need to save more, et cetera, et cetera? How would you react under these type of shocks if if there was th these kind of events where you know something unfortunate happened? Let's let's simulate that. How what would your life look like then? What 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 mitigating action do you need to take um, to that now? And that ties in as well to one of the themes that we talked about, which was around um, connecting to future self. Because I think there's often as an industry when we when we talk to customers about the benefits. It, it's done in you know quite technical legalese, um, and and people don't always. I mean, they know they're getting something, but they're not always like a hundred percent crystal clear on on what it is that they're getting. Um, and there's a lot of experience that we've seen that when people can very um, viscerally connect to and visualize the impact of those decisions at the moment they're making the decision, they make you can call it better financial decisions uh, in terms of saving or, or protecting themselves. I think what often happens is we'll do financial education um, and we'll do it at a particular moment in time. And, and generally what we've seen is that financial education is pretty ineffective. It kind of, you know, people look at it and then forget about it. And then at a completely different time, we then ask them to make some sort of decision around uh, an insurance product, a savings product. And they, they're, they're not inhabiting, you know, what they should have retained from that financial education. So the, the winning formula, what we've seen is at that moment of making the decision, using all this information that we have about someone is to be able to get them to connect to their future self, get them to visualize, how is this actually gonna impact me? What are the trade-offs 
that, that I can that I can pull or what are the levers that I can pull that can impact this picture and, and allow me to do that easily at the moment of making the decision. And, and when you get that right, we've seen evidence that that people do do make much better decisions. It's that concept of a kind of just in time, like we would use in logistics to say, okay, just in time when you needed this advice, um, it showed up. And you know, as you talk through this, Rian, there's this concept of cash flow projections that uh, a lot of financial planners do when they look holistically at someone's finances. And they actually pull these pieces together because it can be so overwhelming. But at the same time, I'm realizing that, you know, the competition for a financial advisor might not just be another advisor it might be an app on your banking profile or it might be an app on you know <laughs> a nearby shop that you regularly buy from so it's not just necessarily the threats that are there and though the channels of communication probably is therefore that much more important to be able to support your client at that time when they need to make a decision through that network um, of of people that guide them yeah and i think i mean there's a, there's a lot of apps and tools that are out there that can help you with, with different components around doing the modeling and projections and stuff. And I think, um, I mean, the important role that advice can play is, is number one, making sure you have a holistic view because most of these solutions emanate from a banking perspective or an insurance perspective or, or some other perspective. So there's a, there's kind of a inherent bias or myopic view of it. You know, they don't consider the full spectrum. So there's, there's value in saying, I can help you. I can check to make sure that you've covered everything, that you haven't forgotten anything out. And then there's kind of all the the things that um, you, you know, the ticket tricks of the trade that that people have to watch out for. So, I mean, one of the one of the big examples that we often use is around, you know, medical medical inflation post retirement. Um, you know, once you once you get to sixty or sixty five, and then once you retired being part of a medical aid and and the costs of, of medical care for most pensioners, I mean, it goes through the roof. Um, you know, medical costs are probably one of the biggest reasons of, for bankruptcy um, in retirement. Um, but most people don't know about that. I mean, a lot of people have this inherent assumption around, you know, inflation will just carry on um, um, at the same pace, you know, my entire life. Well, a lot of people don't factor inflation into the decision around their retirement. We, 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 we've seen this. Um, there's a lot of people that need to be educated around just really understanding how erosive the impact of inflation is. Those that do factor it in often don't realize that that medical inflation is actually a big thing. And so, you know, conveying what to watch out for. Yes, you might have your picture now, but, you know, are you really thinking through all the things that could that could trip you up? I think those are some of the roles um, advisors need to play. Yeah, how great would it be if your bank would give you your own personalized inflation number to plug into your financial plan because they have all this data, right? Don't give me my net worth that's half incorrect. Give me data that, that I can use around this hyper-personalization to say, no, Rian, this is the number for you that you need to plug into, into your planning. The last yeah, piece... Yeah, and I think what... If, yeah, so, well, I mean, one interesting thing, I think South Africa is the ninth most diverse country in the world. Um, so out of the, out of the and I actually always have this action to go and see who are the other eight countries that are ahead of us because I can't believe there's there's eight countries that are more diverse than us from a cultural perspective, from a language perspective, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the key point here is that there is no such thing as the average South African. Um, you know, if you there's a, this great discussion about the mean versus the mode, et cetera. 
um, if you had to put up to say, typically people like you do that, uh, that doesn't exist <laughs> in, in South Africa. You know, there's, we're, where there's such extremities and there's such differences um, that you can't rely on, on talking to people about these averages that don't exist. Because like I mentioned early on with my, my banking example, when, when people look at it, they just, they just don't engage. They go, that's not me. You don't understand me. And they move on. So to, to your point, I mean, you really have to work at, at trying to understand who you are holistically and what are your specific goals. Because uh, the other thing I think we've seen is people and South Africans will define um, financial well-being or whatever you want to call it in very different terms. Um, to some people, they'll say uh, being financially healthy for me is about making sure I've got a, you know, paid for retirement. Other people might say it's about being able to travel twice a year. Um, I've spoken to people who said uh, financial well-being for me means I'm able to put my children through university and, you know, um, get them standing on their feet. Like if I can do that, then, uh, you know, I've, I've lived my, my financial goals. So you, so you have to be able to kind of take that all into account. There's, um, there's a great teacher, his name is Bill Bacharach, and he talks about values-based financial planning. And a question that they often ask clients is, what's important about money to you? And so that elicits this emotional response. And what it sounds like this financial well-being is actually just at the root of, you know, like what is, what is important about money to our clients? And figuring that out and supporting them through this journey. And then the last piece, you know, in your report talks through experimenting with these remuneration models. Um, which is a topic that we can <laughs> end uh, debate without end. Um, so I'd love to hear kind of what what you explored within that section. So I think the the bit around the experimental remuneration models. I think you know as we all know, there's RGR legislation that has been passed, um, and there's more legislation that is that is pending in the works. And and whilst we um, are not a hundred percent sure exactly what the final regulations will be from an RDR perspective. I think we do know that there's gonna be a move away from, from um, you know, commission-based payment forms or remuneration models across the patch. And there's gonna be uh, more focus on activity-based fee models. And so there's gonna be, I think once that comes into, into, into play, you know, advisors and the industries is gonna to have to, for certain products, I don't think it will be for all products, but for certain products, you're almost going to have to give a menu around, you know, these are the potential services I can help you with. And, and these are the fees for it. And it's going to be an interesting discussion to see, you know, do, do the consumers rate the, the service uh, advisors provide at the same hourly rate of a plumber, of an accountant, of a lawyer? Um, you know, how do they, what, what value do they, do they actually attach to those? Um, so I'm not sure what the answers are to that, but I think what we say it's it'll be good for providers to start experimenting now and and trying small little pilots to see what resonates what doesn't resonate so that once the legislation does come to account into account that you're that you're ready and able to take um full advantage it sounds like that also fits under that hyper personalization you know now we have a pricing model that fits your preferences as well uh, irrespective of your views on it, on it, you you can opt into that pricing model. And it's not just you know commission or assets under management. Uh, there's more options. So the I yep. mean from this report, the future looks quite exciting for financial services. Um, given how you've laid it out, and we'll definitely link to the report uh, for someone that wants to read through all of it. Like, what was your take home, and and how was the feeling, or how you feel about financial services specifically in our country? 
I think it's like you said, it's a very exciting time. I think I think there's a huge amount of opportunity. Um, and I think with, with so much change going on now, um, I mean, what, what's also been really interesting throughout this pandemic if you, is if you listen to um, the insurance companies when they did their results presentations um, at the beginning of the year, what, what surprised many of the insurers was how good the persistency was on, on many of the insurance products. Um, and I think one of the insurers said they, they offered payment holidays to their staff and not to the staff, to their customers. And 90% of people who took out those payment holidays paid back the premiums in, in full. And many then went on to take out extra products. So, I mean, this, this crisis has definitely negatively impacted us. But I think one of the silver linings is that there's been a renewed appreciation for, for having the, the right level of protection. And, and that's kind of really prevalent in people's minds. Um, and, and people definitely want help. Um, and, and like I said, I don't think it's ever going to get to a point where you can take the human out of the equation uh, unless it's for super, super simple needs. And so I think it's just, you know, a massive opportunity going forward. And it's going to be a really interesting space. And I think the nature of advice will be kind of fundamentally different in five to 10 years time than it is now. And interesting to see how it plays out. Rian, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. I want to thank you for compiling this awesome report definitely highly recommended that you read to this read through this and yeah thank you so much for your time today where can people reach you if they if they want to have a further conversation um you can hit me up on my linkedin so my name is rion singh um, or you can email me on uh, rion.singh at pwc.com awesome thank you so much rion thanks so much louis